Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS pod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Before we kick off today's episode, I want to let you all know that this is our last planned podcast for the 21-22 academic year, and we will largely take a break for summer. I say largely because I know myself and I imagine I will end up recording one or two episodes over the summer break just because I want to or something serendipitously comes my way. But as far as regular drops go, we are done until October. If you want to know if a new episode comes out over summer, please subscribe to the SASPod on whatever platform you're listening on. And while you're there, please write us a short review. We always love to hear from you and reviews really work the algorithm, which unfortunately we have to care about. You can also follow the Stanford Center for South Asia on social media and or sign up to our newsletter via our website, southasia.stanford.edu. Now on to today's guest, Jonathan Peterson, postdoctoral fellow and lecturer in the Department of Religious Studies at Stanford. He's a scholar of religion in early modern South Asia and works with Sanskrit, Marathi and Persian archives to think about histories of interreligious exchange and conflict. Jonathan, thank you for joining me. How are you? Uh, thank you so much, Lolita. I'm doing well, enjoying a foggy San Francisco morning. <laughs> Why don't you start off by telling us a bit about yourself and how you got interested in South Asia? Um, well, I, I can trace my, my kind of coming to South Asia and interest in South Asia through two trajectories, um, both of which take me to the kind of, I think, malaise of, of post 9-11 mm. middle America um, in, the, in the years just after 9-11 when I was, I was growing up, I was in high school. Um, and um, on, on the one hand, um, the, the kind of, I don't know, rise of what we might think of as a kind of caustic, belligerent ethno-nationalism, mm. the den of Islamophobia um, and, and everything that came along with just the, the politics of the moment got me interested in thinking about religion and, and religious studies more broadly. I found myself um, utterly unprepared, but, but overly willing, I think, to enter into debates about um, religion and um, uh, Islam and, and other such things. Um, and I think that sort of really laid the groundwork for a uh, career in, in religious studies. Um, the, the second trajectory, the one that, that brought me to South Asia, I, am, I can kind of trace back to uh, a really a dear friend of mine um, who and through whom um, I became um, deeply interested in, in um, the classical Indian music tradition. Oh. Um, this friend of mine was, uh, his mother was a, a white Quaker woman and his father uh, was from Bengal. 
Um, and he didn't know his father very well. He had disappeared fairly early on. Um, and so it was, it was in this kind of moment that he was rediscovering um, and almost reclaiming a, a kind of Indian identity through music that I was able to um, come along with him for that path. And I utterly fell in love with um, many of the stock um, uh, people of, of the classical Indian music tradition, Ravi Shankar, um, Pandit Shiv Kumar Sharma, Hari Prasad Chaurasia, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was at a very kind of early formative moment for me that I think piqued my interest in um, uh, what me think of as you know the arts in in South Asia, um, and in particular music theory. Um, and uh, these two trajectories I don't think quite came together until I had the opportunity in university to travel to India for the first time, um, and. Of all places, I don't know why, I think it must have been through um, just knowing of, of Pandit Shiv Kumar Sharma and his Kashmiri roots, I found myself in Srinagar and mm-hmm. was confronted by a whole different trajectory of religious nationalism, um, Islamophobia, right. um, and just the, the politics of, of Kashmir. Um, and this, I think, really set me along the path of thinking about interreligious conflict and histories of 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 uh, interactions between religious communities. I'm reflecting on how the, the names that you mentioned who are the most uh, more popular um, musicians outside of South Asia um, are part of Hindu traditions. And, and although perhaps that was not their narrative, there is definitely a whole narrative in South Asia or in, in India actually specifically uh, around the kind of the Hindu roots of uh, classical music or quote unquote classical music. So it's very interesting that even though you went through that route, you ended up with a, a clear understanding of um, of the importance of Islam in music. And that kind of brought you to the study of religion. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I, um, I think I only became attuned to the politics of music in South Asia at a, at a much later point after having lived in Pune, um, and having having gone to these these large outdoor um, concerts and having seen some of you know these early uh, formative figures um, for me in person live and and kind of witnessing the um, politics of of the communities who um, celebrate these figures and and just the kind of cultural narratives around uh, music uh, today in South Asia um, is. Um, uh, I mean, deeply problematic, and it's saturated with with the kind of nationalism um, that um, I I think had always kind of been um, attuned to uh, push back against in some ways. So um, yeah, I mean, it was it, it's an ironic and interesting um, path, but I don't think we can think of um, the classical Indian music tradition without Muslims and and without Islam. Uh, no, totally. I mean, it, it's it is it. No, absolutely. And so, um, you know, my path was also religion and then um, music. And so, it's it's interesting to hear you speak about a kind of a similar trajectory, even in a very different location. Now, you okay. received your PhD from the University of Toronto in 2021. Congratulations. Um, a, a COVID PhD, we may perhaps call it. What, <laughs> what specifically did you work on for your graduate thesis? Well, thank you for the congratulations. Um, yeah, it was an interesting moment to wrap up and to, to write. Um, and um, I hope to never have to do that again. <laughs> um, you mean so writing I, or writing during a pandemic? Because in some I, way, perhaps I, it I, might have 
no no distractions. I love writing, but writing during the pandemic was, yeah. it was all of the worst things of, of graduate school, school, you know, consolidated yeah. into um, that period. So, um, so I mean, at the University of Toronto, one of the one of the things that drew me to the University of Toronto in the first place um, was uh, the kind of early development of a large collaborative project. Um, it was later called the Age of Vedanta, um, and this was through my um, my mentor and supervisor at Toronto, Ajay Rao, and um, a scholar of Sanskrit at Cornell, uh, Lawrence McCrea. Mm -hmm. um, and we sort of cobbled together a large um, kind of multinational uh, collect collective of Sanskrit scholars. And the interest was on its face to tell something of an intellectual history of Vedanta, which um, is, you know, a kind of loose-knit cluster of, of devotional and um, hermeneutical or scholastic traditions centered around the uh, Upanishads or the kind of later corpus of the Vedas. Um, now, I guess to frame why an intellectual history of this, you know, this thought system and devotional system was important is that, um, you know, like a lot of, a lot of Sanskrit thought systems, Vedanta has suffered from a um, uh, a kind of dual convergence of, you know, thinking about intellectuals as just minds sort of free floating and, and free from the kind of pressures of space and time. So approaching, you know, a, a deep and, and technical scholastic tradition without really much of a mind to um, uh, historical location and, and the pressures of the social on the one hand. And Vedanta, on the other hand, has also been um, largely kind of seen um, in the 19th and 20th centuries as the root of Hinduism. So it, sem it seemed like a, a, a perfect um, place to, to really kind of dig deep and tell a story of this really important, informative um, intellectual and devotional tradition um, with just an amazing group of, of people. Um, and so it was through this Age of Vedanta Collective that I really, I think, kind of learned and honed the craft of intellectual history. Um, now, what I wanted to do in my own work was to take this kind of turn towards the social a little bit further. Um, one of the things that I discovered um, in, in working deeply with Vedanta material was um, this really just incredible and rich archive of uh, I think what we might be able to call a kind of like belligerent or caustic interreligious polemic um, that, that kind of blows up in the 16th century. Um, and, you know, and I've, I've put it out there first as, as being somewhat provocative and hoping for, for pushback, but um, the more that I, I, I put this out there, the more I'm convinced of it, is that the kind of interreligious polemics that were circulating between different stakeholders in this larger world of Vedanta amounts in my opinion, to probably one of the most um, um, widespread and long-lasting um, archives of interreligious conflict that we can locate in early modern South Asia. And this really kind of flips the script of you know, how we think about religious conflict today, largely between these kind of two monolithic entities, Islam and Hinduism, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, if we dig deep you know, and, and let the archives speak for themselves, um, the 
the material that we find points to deep fissures and a lot of, of internal conflict within this kind of larger space of, of Vedanta scholastic writings. So my project was, was geared towards trying to draw some of this stuff out and historicize this archive through a couple of different trajectories. I focus mostly on a family of intellectuals living in Madaras. Um, they had come from, from Maharashtra most likely um, and were um, kind of major power players in this world of uh, interreligious polemics. Um, so this is this is what I, I did with the um, with the dissertation. I like a lot of dissertations. Um, it was you know massive and unwieldy and probably did far too much um, and, and, and it's yes. we need a little bit of trimming and tweaking to to work itself out into a monograph, but um, I'd rather start from having too much than, than too little. So. Right, absolutely, yes, yes. Um, I wanna ask you about Sanskrit because you said you were part of this larger group working on the age of Vedanta. And um, I'm just kind of imagining, you know, these, uh, and I witnessed some of this when we had a workshop at Stanford a few years ago that you were also part of. So. Yeah you're all sitting there working with these original materials, but the way that translations, especially of Sanskrit work, I wonder what you're actually working with. I mean, because presumably if you have 10 Sanskrit scholars sitting around a table reading a particular text, you're not all agreed on what that text says. So how can you even talk about what the text means before you've arrived at what the text actually says? Because there's, I don't know, 200 different ways of reading these, you know, five words that go on for about three pages um <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, help me with this no this is this is such a great point and i um you know i i my 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 kind of approach to this material was was really kind of um uh crafted in the crucible of these you know really kind of intense debates with with um amazing scholars um mm. sitting around the table and um um, you know, I think what, one of the things that your, your point touches on, which I um, am, am kind of deeply committed to, is thinking through the methodologies of an intellectual history of Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. um, and we're talking about writings that are, for the most part, you know, and, and the, the kind of well-known scholar of Sanskrit, Sheldon Pollock, had um, said, you know, written by people who seem to be constitutionally disinclined to space-time localization. So, you know, they've, uh, for the most part, intentionally expunged their writing of themselves in, in some ways or in others, and mm -hmm. are speaking with a network of interlocutors that span multiple centuries, that, um, you know, they're, they're sort of participating in a discourse that um, extends through space and time um, and will, you know, presumably last long after they do. Um, so the question then comes, I mean, how do we start to think about the people who participated in this large intellectual discourse as people? Um, and how do we try to kind of unpack what their motivations may have been and how their, their lives and their participation in a larger world of, of you know, politics and power and, um, um, you know, brushing up against the shoulders of, of other religious communities and other influences. How did these things that are happening on the ground um, inform their, their writing? And, and this isn't a straightforward question and it's difficult to kind of get at in the writing itself. And one of the things that drew me to 
this archive of, of interreligious polemics is precisely because it seemed to be a place where the social, um, the things that are happening on the ground between religious communities and this larger world of intellectual kind of, you know, cogitation collide in really dramatic ways. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we'd be happy to talk a lot more about what that looks like, but um, it just seemed to me that this archive was the first place to start to try to think through some of these larger methodological problems in the field. Um, and I'm, I'm committed to kind of seeing that part of the project through because I think it, it's, it's um, high time that, that Sanskrit scholars start to think about um, the way that, that their texts um, kind of bubbled up out of a larger world of, of, of politics and power. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Okay, great. Well, we will talk more about your project um, as we're moving into the part of the conversation where I want to talk about your time at Stanford specifically. And you have this kind of dual role as a postdoctoral fellow, but also as a lecturer. Uh, and so presumably you're working on your project in, uh, in that one capacity, but you're also teaching. Uh, and I, I want you to tell um, our audience more about the classes you teach and also how those classes inform or are informed by the, the research project you're working on. Sorry, that's a very big question. Yeah. No, no, it's wonderful. Um, so, you know, at Stanford, I, I'm, I'm grateful to actually have um, uh, a little bit of the, the pressure of teaching lifted. Um, I had been teaching since the summer of 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, consistently every term, in fact, uh, at, at the University of Toronto, which was on the one hand a boon because I was able to teach a, a lot of courses and develop um, a handful of courses myself, um, including just courses that I absolutely fell in love with. For instance, um, you know, the, the kind of bread and butter course at the University of Toronto Scarborough was called Moogles in the World. It was really kind of an early modern um, uh, study of, of the Mughal world um, from, from Central Asia to South Asia. Um, and then, you know, another course that I, I developed and fell in love with was um, religion and aesthetics in South Asia, which was kind of a long durée um, look at how aesthetics and, and religion were, were conceived and thought about from, you know, the kind of early uh, dramatic tradition all the way on up to Dalit aesthetics. Um, so a, a really amazing course. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to, at this point in, at Stanford, have a little bit of um, reprieve. I, I can sure. uh, you know, teach one or two cl classes a year um, and, and otherwise sort of working on uh, my research. Um, so that said, uh, at Stanford, I, you know, the, the space has really kind of allowed me to think about more carefully how I can use teaching to push my research in new directions and, and vice versa. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that I, I am hoping to do um, with, with my, my book project, which, which we can talk about a little bit mm -hmm. um, after, is to think about how texts and bodies um, interact and the way that, that um, not only kind of intellectual life is um, inscribed on the body and, and requires a kind of participation on the part of the body, but also how um, doctrines and ideas um, shape bodies and how the shape of bodies can also um, circumscribe communities and ideas of belonging and other mm -hmm. such things. So um, I'm developing a, a course right now that will be on offer next year called um, Religion and Body Modification, um, which examines 
practices of, of body manipulation from, um, you know, like circumcision in a kind of early biblical context um, through, you know, female genital mutilation, um, all the way on up to even ideas of the ritually pure body. Um, mm -hmm. So we'll take a look at um, the, the practice of sallekana and the, 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 you know, the thinning, the intentional thinning um, and, and fasting unto death of- Can you say uh, more about, sun, sun, is it sallekana? I, I just show off my ignorance here. And yeah, yeah. I, I like mean, to think I'm not the only one who might not be familiar with that term. So could you- Of course, of course. So, I mean, this is the, the controversial practice um, among uh, elite Jain monastics of fasting until death. Um, and this is um, kind of one of many case studies that I have selected specifically to examine how bodies and the, the nation states um, collide and, uh, and sometimes in, in dramatic ways. So Sadlekana, um, the practice of, of fasting until death was litigated all the way on up until the, the, the Supreme Court, which you know, essentially barred the practice. Um, so we have, you know, this kind of amazing confluence of religious dictates and a kind of discourse happening within a religious community that's brushing up against um, the, the discourses of the nation state um, and the kind of legal, um, the legal uh, world of, of, you know, um, essentially managing and regulating religion. So um, this is just one of, of a handful of case studies that we'll look at um, that center the body, but also the body as it exists between um, religion and state and, and other kinds of uh, forces. So um, I'm excited about I'm excited about digging into this course. Um, I'm also interested in developing um, a course, hopefully on offer uh, this this coming year or or after on um, the kind of rich, amazing tradition of Indian atheism, um, mm -hmm. which maybe. I have, I've yet to kind of think of a sexy title, but I remember you know, God, Godless <laughs> India or something like that. Godless um, India, mm -hmm. yeah. But I would, would look to the rich, long tradition of, of atheistic thinking from the, the Charvakas, you know, the kind of prototypical materialists um, in the, the, you know, first, um, late, late, you know, late last millennium BCE, first millennium CE, all the way on up to um, you know, new thinkers in, in the colonial period. So my interest is to use this amazing archive of, of what we can think of, I think, uh, reasonably as atheistic um, theorizations to kind of tell a new story and to maybe problematize um, the, the new atheism of Richard Dawkins and, and others. So um, that would be a lot of fun. I, I like that. I remember um, being an undergraduate and, and really getting uh, stuck into the kind of academic study of Hinduism at SOAS. And that was one of the first things they said, I mean, kind of uh, problematizing the, the, the translation of religion, you know, in terms of dharma, and then this idea that, you know, to be a Hindu, you don't even have to believe in God. What does it mm. mean to be a Hindu? And, and mm. um, for a religious studies class that, that felt, you know, early on, it felt pretty revolutionary. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think one of the things that I want to push back against is this idea that, you know, India before the colonial period was a, a just kind of a morass, an endless morass of religion. Yeah. Um, I, I want to draw out voices, you know, of, of skepticism and, you know, uh, just just the internal debates around um, God 
as an entity, um, I think is, a, is an, an interesting way to problematize this idea of just religion in pre-modern South Asia. It's just a kind of a matter of course, um, which it, it clearly isn't. Right. Um, so uh, anyway, it'll be, be a fun class. Um, I, I'm also, I, just the last thing on, on teaching, I, and probably the most boring is that uh, I'm also, uh, interested in, in teaching advanced uh, Sanskrit readings with, with graduate students. And um, this is something that I'll be doing this coming year as well, so. I don't think it's boring at all. I mean, I think um, uh, graduate students and anyone really that, that wants to read more Sanskrit, I mean, you need someone there to kind of guide you through. And um, it's wonderful that you're, that you're willing to do that. So um, not boring at all. <laughs> Maybe a little niche. I mean, I don't think it's, it's very be, niche. It's, it's very not niche. going to be the most busy class on campus. Two, two, three people. From like yeah, but wonderful, wonderful. It uh, brings back happy memories of uh, of doing that myself uh, many years ago. Not the guiding, <laughs> the studying. Just to be just to be clear. All right. So um, let's get a go then to your book project because I think you wanted to say more about that, and I I kind of took you in the realm of teaching because I love hearing people talk about teaching, but let's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, tell us about the book then. Um, well, you know, so the, the, the book project um, is taking, I think, a, an unexpected, but, but I think utterly interesting kind of turn in the dissertation project and, and kind of amplifying it and, and blowing it up a bit and taking a much closer look at this. So, um, you know, within this, this archive of interreligious polemics that I was describing um, in early modern South Asia, you know, that really traveled from the north to the south, the east to the west, you know, we can find the, the remaining traces of this archive in, um, you know, Sanskrit libraries and matas and, uh, you know, national archives um, all over the place. It was really just an incredible, it just generated so much paper. Um, which I take as indicative of, of really generating an enormous participation on the ground. Um, but this archive is, is variegated. And I think one of the more compelling debates that I, I came across centered on this practice of ritual branding, um, quite literally branding the body with the insignia of God, um, or specifically with the insignia of Vishnu. Um, so his discus. And you mean actually on. heat on skin branding? I'm talking about, yeah, taking a, an iron, putting it in a ritual fire and, and, and placing it on your skin and, you know, it, it causes a scar. Yeah. Um, and this was practice. This is a widespread practice in um, the Sri Vaishnava tradition in South India and um, the kind of Vaishnava dualist tradition uh, attributed to this figure named Madhva Acharya, which is now a, a very kind of prominent, um, has a prominent kind of presence in modern day Karnataka and elsewhere in the Deccan. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm using the, the polemics around this practice of branding to tell a story about um, the, way that, the way that authority um, gets debated in, in early modern South Asia. And, um, I think to, to, to tell this story, you have to maybe give a little bit more context, which is that this practice of branding ostensibly bubbled up from you know, the, the world of popular religion. Um, it seems to have been probably a practice that was, was done um, by non-elites, non-Brahmins um, in a kind of 
maybe tantric or ritualistic frame well outside of you know the Vedic liturgies of high Brahmanism. Um, but crucially, sometime around the, the turn of the, the second millennium, um, there's an, an amazing concerted effort to essentially Vedicize the practice. Mm -hmm. And the way that this happens is that um, we, you have these you know, incredible intellectuals who are rereading the Vedas to essentially prescribe ritual branding and to, um, and to use its kind of newfound Vedic basis um, as a way to essentially um, convince other Brahmins and to, um, and to uh, essentially make the claim that this is a, a vital practice for initiation and, and conversion. Um, and of course, you have uh, an enormous backlash. And this is where we start to see these really interesting fissures um, show up between different Brahmin communities around how to read the Vedas and how to essentially operationalize the Vedas um, in a world of bodies and, and in a world of, of community formation. Yeah. Um, so I want to tell, on the one hand, this story. And there's just an incredible polemic that, that develops, you know, with you know, really kind of belligerent titles like, um, you know, exterminating, uh, you know, uprooting the practice of ritual branding or, um, you know, get, gets debated in texts, you know, like slapping the face of so-and-so intellectual. And, uh, you know, so this kind of really like raucous world of, of writing. Um, Sanskrit writing, these are your translations? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, yeah. Okay. yeah. Translations, of the, translations of the titles of these <laughs> texts. Taptamudra um, Vidravana, you know, exterminating the practice of heated branding right. um, and so on. So we, we, we have a bunch of these texts, most of which have never been um, published, um, none of which have ever been studied. So there's a rich story to be told just on the, the kind of, you know, indological, in the indological stream, if you will, which is yeah. just a kind of critical study of of uh, pre-modern Sanskrit or pre-modern Indian languages. Um, but I want to use this story to tell, to problematize the way that, for instance, caste has been conceived um, in, in thinking about this kind of monolithic world of, of Vaidika Brahmins or Vedic Brahmins. And this is something that, you know, um, has been picked up in the last decade or, or, or two to kind of theorize this idea of like a unified Hindu identity that shows up in, in the early modern period around the authority of the Vedas. And one of the things that this book project does is to problematize the idea of the authority of the Vedas itself, um, that the authority of the Vedas doesn't rest on the, the texts or the scriptures themselves, but precisely on how a person reads and operationalizes them. Um, and on that, uh, like, on, on, on that issue, uh, communities were viciously split. Um, and that's not a story that's ever been told. Well, it's so um, modern. It's so, I mean, I, I, it's, it's, you know, you speak of it, you know, with so much enthusiasm, but just that the, 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 the ideas themselves, I mean, this can become a book that really challenges um, kind of the, uh, the, you know, essentializing of text, I guess, which is something that we're all up against all the time. And, and dare I say, not just in religious traditions, in legal traditions as well. And, and you know yeah, what I'm yeah. referring to. It's exactly. exactly. And, 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 you know, I think one of the things that I'm, I'm so excited about trying to do with this project is, you know, um, 
the, the continental uh, philosopher and, and kind of art historian theorist, Jean-Luc Nancy, says, uh, you know, somewhere in, in his book, um, Corpus is what it's called. Um, you know, he says, you know, I know of no texts that don't touch. Um, and this is, I think, very, very true in, in a very specific way in this um, kind of interreligious polemics around branding, because um, the brand, the, the, the insignia, at least for its critics, is not so much a, a symbol of sectarian identity. So the, the animus that, that exists between these communities, I don't think is so much sectarian as it is an emblem of, of a kind of flawed exegesis, of a, of a kind of um, uh, malevolent scholasticism. And so what we see, at least in the anti-branding polemic, is a, is a really kind of almost deliberately asectarian stance um, against certain reading practices and, and certain ways in which the, the Vedas are, are mobilized. Um, so I want to take a step back away from, you know, debates around the Vedas as a kind of monolithic entity. I want to take a step back away from kind of privileging sect and sectarianism as a kind of, um, you know, enduring starting point for, for divisions between religious communities and, and get back to just how um, how really kind of fluid and, and um, sticky some of these debates between Brahmin communities are, and to use it as a way to problematize, um, you know, genealogies of Hinduism in the pre-colonial. Um, fluid and sticky, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say one other thing too, which is that, um, you know, I think what makes this project potentially very rich is that the, the practice continues all the way on up to this day, I mean, every every year in the summer months um, in in Karnataka, you know, throngs of people come together in temples and conference spaces, and are branded by you know a saffron clad swami. Um, it's it's a it's a practice that endures, um, although you know, as as we know as scholars of religion, you know, the the practice itself may continue, but the way that it's conceived and the, the ideas that are larded onto it change and shift. And so, um, you know, you have a really interesting discourse around uh, almost a kind of medicalization of the practice, thinking right. of it through, you know, a lot of like people like Banu Subramaniam and this idea of a kind of Hindu medicine. Um, it also brushes up against, you know, the, the, the secular um, state in a way too. Been in the recent years, um, a deliberate attempt to kind of carve out um, a, a legal space for this practice so that it's not um, regulated. In, in uh, there was a kind of spate of, of anti superstition bills in Karnataka um, in 2017 that really got the, the uh, Vaishnava community um, uh, on the edge of their seats and, and were mobilized to kind of pressure the government to, to exempt this practice. So it still is all over the place. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to explore. I won't be able to do it all in, in this book, but I want to tell a story about this practice. And what I love about it is that bodies are really central to it. Um, so I'm mindful of the time, but I, I hope this is not a huge, this is a bit of a yes, no question. I just want to, um, uh, double check when you say that lots of people line up uh, to be branded uh, if that is across genders. It is, yes. So uh, both women and men, although of course it's still gendered, um, women are only 
uh, only receive brands on their their forearms, mm-hmm. um, whereas men for whom being shirtless as both you know socially and ritually sanctioned right. um, receive three extra bands on their chest, one, two on their chest and one on their belly. So um, I've seen in the kind of online media space how um, how uh, branding, the, the, almost the kind of quantity of brands gets gendered. Um, there's an accumulation of piety almost through the accumulation of branding. I wrote about this um, in, a, in a kind of public facing piece with a colleague at um, the University of of Toronto who started, I think, this amazing project, a a global kind of comparative uh, study of blasphemy. Um, And I I wrote about the kind of debates around branding and and, um, in 2017 with the the anti-superstition bills. Um, So it's there. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Okay, and then finally, finally, I do want you to tell us about this other project that I know you're working on, on interreligious love. So please share with us what that's about. Right, yeah. Um, well, this, this project is um, it sort of emerged out of, as with most things, a kind of happenstance um, discovery of, of a um, really amazing and, and minor poet, a poet that has not been been studied at all um, in the kind of canon of, of early modern Sanskrit poets who's living in Benares. Um, um, and this this poet writes sincerely on on a um, a kind of historical moment. This this poem is called an Aitihasika Kavya, a kind of historical poem um, about an interreligious love affair between a Brahmin and a a um, a princess in, in one of the uh, Mughal vassal states in the Deccan. Um, and what is so, I think, amazing and striking about this poem is that one, it's shorn of any of the kind of, um, uh, I don't know if you may think of it as a kind of moralistic, um, judgmental, um, you know, frame in which, you know, interreligious love is condemned one way or the other, um, but is really a kind of, um, a uh, close account and poetically rich account of a flourishing love affair between a Brahmin tutor and a Muslim woman um, in this kind of imperial space. Um, and so I want to take this, this poem and use it as the basis to explore um, ideas of interreligious love and the poetic imaginary of, of Brahmins living in Persianate Northern India. Um, and, and it's not a, an expansive archive, but there's enough, I think, to draw on both in this poem and outside of it to really kind of unpack a kind of sociality, if you will, of, of love across religious boundaries. Um, and it's that's something I'm hoping to explore also in the next year, um, either in uh, a, a long publication or, or perhaps something uh, larger, so. Amazing. Uh, and I love that you mentioned the happenstance. I think that's something that um, it's almost like not discussed as much as it should, because there's this idea that we know what we're doing uh, mm. and <laughs> we do mostly know what we're doing. Um, but um, lo- <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm definitely not speaking. Oh, anyway, um, <laughs> but, you know, we're on a certain path and, and then and it's actually all these side roads where where so much actually takes place and we we the great discoveries and so i are made so i feel that um that 
Um, and we talk, I talked about this before on the, on the SAS pod, I forget with whom, but in the sciences, a, a quote-unquote failed experiment is also a successful experiment. We've now established that this doesn't actually lead to that. Whereas yeah, yeah. in the humanities, there's more of an idea where you've got to, you've got to discover something, you've got mm-hmm. to add something new, but on the way there, so much can get lost if we're not willing to take all these interesting side roads and things that kind yeah. of come our way. Absolutely. I... I, I don't want to take up too much more time, but I, uh, I'll just add that, you know, the way that, that we ask graduate students to enter into the archive with a kind of fully formed picture of, of, of their project is in some ways flipped. And I'm really grateful to have had um, uh, multiple years to have lived in, in India and to have been able to really sit in, in various archives throughout the country and just explore material um, and and this is um, in fact actually it's the stuff that I explored outside of my original intent that I'm actually uh, writing on now so yeah. and I'm grateful to have had that opportunity to just explore so fantastic well thank you so much uh, it's really been wonderful talking to you um, and um, I look forward to seeing you on campus yeah thank you so much Lalita. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Come